Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, we've got a special multi-contributor episode on a cracking topic. You're going to love it because we're focusing in on the rise of Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra, arguably the most renowned, the most famous woman from the ancient world. And as mentioned, we're not going to be really focusing in on her downfall, on the Battle of Actium, on her end alongside Mark Antony, Shakespeare and the like. We're going to be focusing in on what we know about her rise to such an extraordinary position and how she came to be the ruler of this incredibly powerful empire, Ptolemaic Kingdom in the Eastern Mediterranean. We're going to be looking at all of this from her birth to the donations of Alexandria with three experts today. We have got Professor Joyce Tildesley, we have got Dr Chris Norton and we have got Dr Glenn Godenho, all together along with some voiceover narration by myself linking it all together. Now these three brilliant experts, Glenn, Joyce and Chris, they also feature in the documentary version of this episode, The Rise of Cleopatra, which we have recently released on History Hit TV. So if you're interested to learn more, you can go and check out that documentary and the other rise of episodes that we have in that collection, such as the rise of Hannibal and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. But that is enough from me. We've put a lot of hours into this particular episode. Kudos goes to our editor of this episode, Tom Dinas, and also, of course, our producers, Elena Guthrie and Annie Colo. They all deserve a lot of credit. I'm just the tip of the iceberg in the Ancients team. And that's enough from me, because here you go. Here is our special Rise of Cleopatra episode today. Enjoy. Cleopatra was born in around 69 BC. She was born into a dynasty that had ruled over Egypt for more than 200 years, the Ptolemaic dynasty. The Ptolemaic dynasty is the name that we give to the kings who basically are all descended from each other and call themselves Ptolemy. 
it's at, right at the end of Egypt's dynastic age. So it's right at the end of the period where Egypt is ruled by pharaohs or kings. And it's after Alexander the Great has conquered Egypt. So Alexander the Great conquers Egypt in 332 BCE. He dies shortly after. And one of his generals, Ptolemy, takes the throne. Ptolemy took Egypt, founded a new line. And from there, you get two or three centuries worth of rulers descended from Ptolemy, a great number of whom have the same name, Ptolemy. So Ptolemy the first, second, third, through to the 14th, hence the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Ptolemaic period. Now, during the third and second centuries BC in particular, the Ptolemaic kingdom had been quite a power in the eastern Mediterranean, battling against other factions such as, for instance, the Seleucid Empire in modern-day Syria. But by the first century BC, things were changing. This once dominant kingdom found itself dwarfed by the new hegemonic power in the Mediterranean, Rome. Rome is getting stronger. It's working towards being sort of imperial Rome that we recognise from the Emperor Augustus. So we have Julius Caesar coming to prominence. So Rome is increasingly becoming a force to be reckoned with. And the Egyptians are unfortunately indebted to Rome. Rome had been called upon from time to time by Egypt to help out with various issues. And something that, that's kind of well known with the Ptolemaic period is that there were a lot of internal issues as well as external pressures as well. So Rome was often called upon to help out. The reason Rome would be happy to help out in Egypt's affairs is because Egypt was a very, very wealthy place and Rome relied on resource from Egypt flowing back to Rome. So if there was an issue that might have prohibited materials from reaching Rome, Rome would take an interest. So for quite some time, Rome had been called on by Egypt, which meant that Rome weren't going to do this for free. It meant that Egypt was increasingly in Rome's debt. And in fact, by the time of Cleopatra's birth, Egypt was really a, a client state, highly dependent on Rome and subject to its will. So this was the situation in the Mediterranean at the time of Cleopatra's birth in around 69 BC. Now, at the heart of Cleopatra's Ptolemaic world was a city, a wealthy metropolis that at the time was a shining light of the Mediterranean, Alexandria. We're very fortunate when it comes to Alexandria that we have some quite detailed descriptions of what it was like. Obviously, it's an Egyptian city, it's in Egypt, but it's not like any other Egyptian city. First of all, it's really new. It's founded by Alexander the Great, but basically built by the Ptolemies. So everything's new in it. Unlike, say, Thebes and Memphis, which are the traditional cities of Egypt, the traditional capitals, they're very well-established, very old cities. This is a new city with bright new buildings. It's got a library. It's got kind of a university, a museum. It's got a lighthouse. It's a Mediterranean city. It's very Greek overridingly Greek in terms of architecture and, and other things. In fact, the architecture at this particular time wouldn't have looked that ancient Egyptian. So you travel further down in the Nile Valley, you've got very ancient Egyptian-looking temples and buildings and things. In Alexandria, much more Greek influence at this particular time. It's so strange that the Egyptians themselves call it Alexandria next to Egypt. They don't just call it Alexandria because to the native Egyptians who don't live in Alexandria, they regard it as very, very strange. It's quite a diverse place. There are three main population groups there. We've got Egyptians, obviously. We've got Greeks, obviously, as well. And also quite a sizable Jewish cohort, too. 
And that's putting things quite neatly into separate cohorts. The diversity would have been greater than that, of course. Nubians, people from Sudan, would have been part of Egyptian society for some time and clearly would be in uh, Alexandria as well. And they appear to have been allowed to live harmoniously alongside one another. And that undoubtedly, I think, probably contributed to Alexandria's success culturally and intellectually. It was a very international, one is tempted to say almost kind of modern, international city. Cleopatra belonged to no ordinary Alexandrian family. She was royalty. Cleopatra has, I think it's fair to say, the great misfortune to be born into a bit of a nightmare of a family. Well, Cleopatra's a Ptolemy, and the Ptolemies have been on the throne for about 300 years. They're a family that has the tradition of brother-sister marriages, so they're quite a close family, if you like. But this has not necessarily been a good thing. It means that um, they're a family that's got a lot of infighting as people jostle for the throne, as people are quite happy to bump off their relations to get to the throne. So there's a really a whole history of quite a bloodthirsty family history behind them. Her immediate family, though, is quite complicated and interesting. Her father is Ptolemy XII, but he wasn't born to be king of Egypt. He was an illegitimate son, and he was called in as king because the infighting that had gone ahead of him had basically wiped out most of the royal family. So he was the only one left to take the throne, even though he was illegitimate and living in Syria. He was brought to Egypt and made king of Egypt, so he'd never expected this. He is married to a woman called Cleopatra. You find that they use the same names over and over again. Cleopatra V, we call her. We number the Cleopatras just so we know who's who. It doesn't mean that they ruled by themselves. It's just, it's just a convention. But we don't know who she was. Now, we could guess that maybe she was his sister because they did go in quite a lot for brother-sister marriages, but not necessarily. And we can't just say because she was called Cleopatra that she was a member of that family because she might have changed the name when she married. So we don't know who her mother was. Regardless, she was the eldest child of Ptolemy XII and his wife or wives. And she had a couple of younger brothers as well, who go on to be Ptolemy XIII and Ptolemy XIV. So that's essentially Cleopatra's kind of core immediate family units as far as we know it. Cleopatra spent her early years in Alexandria, right at the heart of the Ptolemaic kingdom. It's tough with Cleopatra's early years. There's nothing really recorded. I mean, in terms of evidence, there's nothing really from Egypt that tells us about Cleopatra. I think most of the evidence comes later from her enemies and the literature and the propaganda and things. That said, we can look at the context in which she grew up. So we can acknowledge that she's growing up in Alexandria, this fantastic place of learning. And we can look at some fantastic scholarship done by medieval Arab scholars. And the sources that, that they've interrogated when we look at their work suggest strongly that Cleopatra was highly literate. She spoke different languages, which would make sense for a statesperson, especially living and working in that part of the world with huge diversity. So it would appear that growing up, she learnt how to speak different languages so she could converse with different subjects, as it were. And of course, this would have taken place in the museum, this kind of place of learning, which we know was there at this particular time as well. So I think we can start piecing together the picture of a young Cleopatra as a scholar. And I don't think there's much of a problem with that. I think that the activities she goes on to do shows that she's clearly a learned person. So that's what we know of Cleopatra's early life in a nutshell 
that she seems to have really taken advantage of the Greek tuition that were available to her as a royal member of the family. But things would take a turn for the worse, not long after Cleopatra's 10th birthday. Ptolemy XII, Cleopatra's dad, is forced into exile, uh, and it comes back to, to Rome's influence in Egypt at this particular time. Well, Ptolemy XII wasn't particularly popular, and he'd borrowed money from the Romans, so he was struggling a bit anyway. He wasn't popular with the people of Alexandria. What mattered in those days is what the people of Alexandria thought. The people outside Egypt, less so. But in Alexandria, he's not popular. And then the Romans decided to take over Cyprus, which was actually being ruled by his brother. And it all ended very tragically for the brother. Rome taking over Cyprus leads Ptolemy XII's brother to commit suicide. The real problem is Ptolemy XII doesn't do anything. You get the impression he kind of shrugs his shoulders and, yeah, oh well. And the Alexandrians find that abhorrent. They're like, this is, this is no ruler. That's his own blood, no chance. And so they send him packing and he flees off to Rhodes. Such an act evidently had repercussions for the young Cleopatra. Cleopatra, this time, is it looks like she's already proved herself. Good ally of her father, a potential ruler, you know, someone who's smart, someone who's well-trained. And so some people believe that she went off with her, with her father, Ptolemy XII. Um, there's no direct evidence for that per se, um, so it's a possibility. She seems to have a genius for keeping a low profile at times of crisis, which I think is a very, very sensible thing to do. So there are really key moments in her history where you, you wonder what she's doing, you hear nothing, and she seems to have this ability to wait and see which way things turn out and then to work out accordingly how to align herself. And I suspect she wouldn't have been very old at this time, so maybe she was just too young to have any say in it. But I suspect also that deliberate low keys is what she's playing. Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, was ultimately reinstated, thanks to Rome. It was an important moment, a significant one, that also affected the young Cleopatra. It's at this time when Ptolemy XII gets his throne back that we start to see Cleopatra more clearly. She starts to associate herself with him. Her mother, Cleopatra V, or her potential mother, we're not quite sure, has vanished. Her elder sister has been executed and her other sister is a younger sister. And one thing we know that kings of Egypt need is a queen to support them. They don't actually have to be necessarily married to that queen. I'm not suggesting that she marries her father, but she seems to have supported him by performing feminine role alongside his kingship. Having restored his control over Egypt, Ptolemy XII continued to rule the country until his death in 51 BC. This was a seismic moment, the death of her father, for the teenage Cleopatra. Now through this kind of period, Cleopatra's clearly proved herself to, to her father as a, as a capable individual. And so in his will, he signals that Cleopatra the seventh, his daughter, should rule alongside her younger brother. So the eldest of her two younger brothers, and that's Ptolemy XIII. So now we've got the situation where Ptolemy XII is dead and his daughter, Cleopatra VII, she's around 20 years old, 18, 19 years old. And her younger, eldest younger brother, Ptolemy XIII, is around 10 or 11. They're co-ruling together. Effectively, she is in charge because he's just too young. So although they are king and queen together, as soon as they come to the throne together, we see her 
her name goes forward and she he's sort of pushed in, in, out of the out of the limelight if you like and it's as if she's ruling alone and he's there young and being supported by a group of tutors but not really able to fight against it because he's just too young really to do anything at this time. But obviously we can guess that he's not particularly happy about this situation. It's not the normal way. Normally the king's name would always go first. And in this instance, the king isn't even mentioned. Now, fortunately for Cleopatra, she had several precedents of powerful Ptolemaic queens, as Glenn explains. Cleopatra II, Cleopatra III, Along with a lot of these earlier Ptolemaic rulers, Arsinoe II as well is another really big one, they serve as a really nice model for Cleopatra because these people ruled Egypt as, as queens of Egypt. They were very powerful, they were well respected, their images were put on temple walls. They were legitimate pharaohs of Egypt or queens of Egypt alongside pharaohs at various times. And so Cleopatra finds herself in a very similar position to that as a, a woman who is rather taking the lead in the rulership of Egypt. And so to a certain extent, she's looking back to these ancestors and kind of moulding herself in the same way. They provide a nice model for someone like Cleopatra. From the limited evidence that survives, it seems that Cleopatra aimed to follow in the footsteps of her regional predecessors right from the start of her reign. Chris explains an interesting story that seems that may well relate to this. We know from a stela that was discovered at Armant, a site a few kilometres to the south of the ancient city of Thebes, a long way south of Alexandria, deep in the heart of Upper Egypt, the traditional heartland of, of Egypt, where the cult of the Egyptians' favourite god for most of, of ancient Egyptian history, Amun, was to be found. Cleopatra was present, we know from this stela, at the installation of a Bukis bull. This was an important part of the religious landscape in Egypt, the installation of one of these sacred bulls. And she, according to the stela, was not just present, but herself rode the boat that the bull was taken to Armand on. So difficult to know whether this reflects a genuine historical event in the early life of Cleopatra as a newly installed pharaoh, or whether she herself is manipulating things already here. But she was probably aware that in doing this and having it recorded in this way, she would be seen to be playing a major part in something that for the Egyptians themselves would have held very dear. And it's difficult, I think, not to imagine that already she was she had one eye on trying to make sure that she had the approval of the Egyptian people and that's a theme that runs right the way through her reign. For two to three years Cleopatra was essentially Egypt's sole ruler. Her prominence however did not last. Well it seems almost inevitable that having been installed as joint rulers of Egypt Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy XIII would fall out. Cleopatra and Ptolemy XIII fall out because they both want to rule Egypt. So she has been ruling Egypt effectively and he's just been a silent partner. Now he's old enough, he wants to take over and he doesn't particularly want to be doing it with his big bossy elder sister there. So he starts to push himself forward and he is supported by a group of tutors and advisors. She presumably has a group of tutors and advisors with her, but we, we learn more about his because he's younger and they're pushing him, telling him what to do all the time. The impression you get through this is that Ptolemy XIII's court is becoming kind of more and more unhappy. And at the same time, Cleopatra is potentially becoming a little more and more unpopular 
certainly amongst her brother's kind of groupings. And so that all comes to a head at one particular point and backed with his court, Ptolemy XIII kind of makes these issues known and starts to try and do the opposite and push Cleopatra out. Ptolemy's coup against Cleopatra worked. Seeing that popular support was on her brother's side, Cleopatra and her supporters fled Alexandria. The queen, however, remained intent on regaining her throne. So as with the the pattern in the Ptolemaic period of people being exiled, Cleopatra finds herself having to flee Egypt because of her younger brother's kind of intensive activity towards her. He's not happy, of course. So she flees and she heads to Syria and Ptolemy XIII rules alone in Egypt as the sole ruler. What's quite incredible is that somehow, and we're not quite sure how, Cleopatra manages to raise quite a substantial army in Syria. She has designs on on coming back to Egypt, of course. How exactly she does that, we don't know, but possibly calling in favours. So in the same way that, that Egypt is in Rome's debt, Egypt being a wealthy country, would also, there'd be other countries that owed, that were in debt to Egypt, as it were. So it's possible that's how she managed to raise this, this army. But it's not as straightforward as her simply sailing back to Egypt and taking the throne, because something else is happening in the background with Rome. And we've got this kind of civil war between Pompey and Caesar, these two generals. And these Roman generals are hugely powerful. They command massive, massive armies. By August 48 BC, Rome was in a state of turmoil, of civil war. But by this time, Julius Caesar was winning the Roman civil war against Pompey, having recently defeated his great rival at the climactic Battle of Pharsalus. Pompey, however, survived the battle and vowed to fight on, intent on reviving his fortunes in Egypt. It was a decision that would greatly affect both Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra. Pompey has fled and he's fleeing to Egypt because he expects that he'll get support from the Ptolemaic royal family because he in the past has supported Ptolemy XII, uh, the father of Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra VII. So he comes to Egypt expecting to be welcomed and at least given somewhere you know, sanctuary. Pompey sets sail for Egypt and he goes to Pelusium and that happens to be where Ptolemy is camped waiting for his sister to arrive with her troops from Syria. And Ptolemy doesn't know what to do and he calls his advisors in and they they give him this different advice. But basically, they think the best thing to do is to try and become friendly with Julius Caesar by killing his enemy. Because if they help Pompey, no good will come of it. They will be seen as helping an enemy of Rome and it's clear that Caesar is the victor. So Caesar is the one whose opinion matters. So that's what they do, they kill him. And they then send, allegedly, the head of Pompey and his signet ring to Julius Caesar, who has landed not at Pelusium, but also on the Mediterranean coast in Egypt, in Alexandria. So as Caesar, chasing Pompey, arrives in Alexandria, he's presented with this head and signet rings of his enemy. Now, obviously, for Caesar, this is probably a good thing because his enemy is dead, but he can't be seen to agree that it's a good thing because you can't have random foreigners killing Romans. That's a really bad thing. So he instantly um, says, oh, this is terrible. 
and marches into Alexandria with the very small number of troops he has with him and, and occupies the palace. And then he decides that he will himself sort out the problems between Ptolemy and Cleopatra. So he summons them both to Alexandria to meet him and he's going to resolve this issue and Egypt will be under their rule again, he thinks. The exiled Cleopatra was keen to answer the summon. She was eager to meet Caesar. Reaching the Roman statesman, however, was easier said than done. She recognises, of course, that Ptolemy XIII will try to oppose this, and so she needs some way of setting up a meeting without Ptolemy XIII being aware of it. So it wouldn't be fitting to try to do this with great pomp and splendour, the kind of way you might normally set up a diplomatic meeting, lots of show of wealth and of power and lots of boats and entourage, that kind of thing. Instead, she travels to Alexandria covertly in a small boat. The accounts differ, but it, it seems that she snuck into the royal palace in some sort of disguise. Depends what you read, but wrapped in some sort of bedding, we think. Although that's been a bit translated, the popular myth now is that she was wrapped in a carpet. Whatever it is, the idea is that she's wrapped in some sort of fabric and she's slung over someone's shoulder and that Caesar's in the palace and they open the doors and say, we've got a delivery for you. And then they sort of flick it and the, the carpet unrolls. And right in the middle there is, is Cleopatra unrolls at his feet. And that's the introduction. How true that is, is hard to know. Doubtless these stories get kind of exasperated over time until they finally get committed to writing and then get picked up again and again and again. But I think the take home point is that we can probably believe that there was a need for Cleopatra to meet Caesar for the benefit of Egypt and for her entrance back into Egypt. I think Caesar probably wanted to meet Cleopatra. He wasn't a big fan of her brother because her brother Ptolemy XIII had just killed Pompey. And we know that he's unhappy with that. So it looks like this could be a mutually beneficial meeting. And I guess we'd have no problem in believing that Cleopatra had to be smuggled in in some way as well. So the more you kind of look into it, even if we don't believe the kind of theatricality of the carpet story, clearly there's some kernels of truth here. Persuading Caesar to support her cause was Cleopatra's plan, and it worked. Well, we don't have an eyewitness account as to how Caesar reacted to all of this. All we know is, is what happened, that one moment Ptolemy Thirteenth is like the person who is obviously going to rule Egypt, he's the popular choice, and the next minute Julius Caesar is saying that Cleopatra and Ptolemy have to be together again and will rule it as king and queen. So it seems very clear that in a very short period of time Cleopatra has been able to sway him to her way of thinking. Now, how she did this, we don't know. It's assumed that she seduced him. Maybe that's the case. If it is the case, is that really a big deal? I don't know. There's the throne at stake here. But maybe they just sat down and talked. We, we really don't know what happened. But certainly, we tend to interpret it as a really great love story, don't we? Now, this seems like as good a time as any to take a slight tangent and ask the very popular question of what did Cleopatra look like? Well, contemporary depictions of her are limited, but one source that we do have is coinage, minted by Cleopatra throughout her reign. Cleopatra's coinage is quite interesting, and a lot of people like to look at these coins and say this is a portrait of Cleopatra. And then people get very excited because then they try and make 3D representations and start commenting on various things like noses and chins and various other things. 
We always assume that Cleopatra coinage is the most accurate representation that we have of her because it's contemporary to her. A lot of the other images we have of her aren't contemporary to her. And because we tend to assume that people do put their own image on a coin. I'm not entirely sure how accurate it would be because you might, for example, want to depict yourself as stronger than you are or, or somehow different. It's propaganda, isn't it, an image on a, on a coin? So you might not necessarily depict yourself actually as you are, but we tend to think that this is the most lifelike interpretation of Cleopatra. And to modern eyes, she's not particularly beautiful. She's got quite a prominent nose, she's got quite a prominent chin, she's got sunken eyes. You have to remember that these coins are tiny. They're not huge coins. They're not, you know, very, very difficult to make. Having said that, also, she might have chosen to look like this, to look fierce and to look strong, to give this image to people who might look at her coins. But if we take this evidence together, she's not what we would today, I think, call conventionally beautiful. I don't think that really matters, though. Um, we're very obsessed with how beautiful Cleopatra must have been. It's, it's almost seen as a defining characteristic. And yet we have people who haven't known her, but have known people who've known her, tell us that her real attraction is in her voice and the way she talks and the way she presents herself. She's obviously very clever. She doesn't necessarily, I think, need to be beautiful as well. She could still persuade people that she's the right person to be on the throne. She can still charm people even if she's not, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
but this volatile arrangement soon came crashing down. So Caesar stipulates that Cleopatra VII should rule alongside Ptolemy XIII, as they had done before, and try and kind of maintain that status quo and get it back. But we know that that's problematic. He reads Ptolemy XII's will, that's Cleopatra and Ptolemy XIII's father's will, in which it clearly states that he wishes for the two of them to rule together. So Caesar is more or less saying, you've got to get on with this. You know, you've got to make this work somehow. When Ptolemy the Thirteenth hears this, he has a bit of a hissy fit and he takes off his throne and throws it down and said, I'm not going along with this. And this is when the people of Alexandria start to arm their slaves and everyone gets really worried because it becomes apparent that this isn't going to happen. And actually when Cleopatra re-enters, civil war erupts. So the first kind of major conflict between Caesar and Cleopatra and Ptolemy the Thirteenth and his gang is in Alexandria itself. And it's during this period that Alexandria sustains quite a lot of damage as well. Caesar is in quite a lot of danger because he's arrived in Alexandria not being prepared to fight a war, so he has to send for more troops. At one point, he nearly drowns because he falls into the water. He also manages, or his troops manage, to set fire to the Library of Alexandria when they're dealing with fire and the battle situation. But it comes to an end after three or four months of really heavy fighting with Ptolemy drowning. Apparently, his armour is too heavy for him to escape from the water. It's quite convenient for Cleopatra and for Caesar now because the doors now open for Cleopatra to regain the throne in Egypt. However, we've got that same problem where she can't really be the sole ruler. That's not the preferred mode of doing things at the moment. She needs to co-rule and she does have her younger brother still. So Ptolemy XIV comes to the throne to rule alongside Cleopatra VII. So Cleopatra now once again is back on the Egyptian throne, this time co-ruling with her younger brother Ptolemy XIV. But of course, there is also another figure close by her side, Julius Caesar. Once Ptolemy XIII is out of the way and Cleopatra and Caesar are in Egypt, Caesar does have a lot of other things, Roman business to attend to elsewhere in the empire, which he eventually gets round to. But before then, it appears that they stay in Egypt for a period and they put on quite a display for Egypt to kind of, I suppose, show Egypt this new alliance between Cleopatra and between Caesar, between Egypt and between Rome, and kind of really show the population, I suppose, who's boss now. And the way they do this is with a really magnificent Nile cruise. We don't know if this is true or not. It's possible because we know that the Ptolemaic royal family all had barges and sailing down the Nile was a very Egyptian thing to do. Traditional Egyptian kings didn't have just one palace. They would sail up and down the Nile, reminding their people that they existed, really, because it's a long, thin country, Egypt. So it's a long way from, say, Thebes to Memphis in the north. And it may well be that Cleopatra just wanted to show him his new land or her new land, which obviously is, he's allied with her. It's basically his land. He would have been aware of the great wonders that were to be seen in Egypt, but perhaps hadn't set eyes on them himself. It's easy to think that he would have been very, very impressed by what he saw in great centres like Memphis, Thebes, and then in Philae as well, with lots and lots of other sort of temples and along the way. So this was a, a really, I think, if this was Cleopatra's initiative, really a very clever thing for her to have done. 
it helps strengthen her position with the Egyptian people. It helps strengthen her position with Julius Caesar. He would also not have been unhappy about this arrangement, I think, as well, bringing Egypt perhaps more into Rome's control. Also, we know that he was always very interested in trying to find the source of the Nile, we're told this. So maybe he also thought he could do this, but he couldn't. He didn't get far enough to do that. In early 47 BC, following this Nile cruise and Caesar's supposed failure to reach the source of the Nile, well, Caesar left Egypt and Cleopatra. After his departure, Cleopatra continued to strengthen her position. Sometime after Julius Caesar leaves, Cleopatra has a baby who she calls Caesarian, little Caesar, which is a bit of a giveaway, but she never herself tells us who the father of this baby is. Again, she's quite good at keeping silence when it's important. So there's a lot of speculation as to who he may be. Is he Julius Caesar's child? Is he not? I think most people think that he probably is. From her point of view, to have a child with Julius Caesar would be a very, very sensible decision because Julius Caesar is clearly going to be the person who's effectively ruling Rome. I mean, he's not going to be a king because it's Rome, but effectively he is. So if she has a child that can unite both Rome and Egypt, two great powerhouses at the time, that would be a really good thing and it would guarantee her family's security, but also her country's security. So she would have been very much hoping that not only was Caesarian going to take over from her to ensure that her favoured candidate for the throne would rule into the future, but also that the balance of power with Cleopatra continuing to rule an independent Egypt, Caesarian following her in that, but with the backing of Rome, without Rome perhaps, you know, swallowing Egypt altogether, that's the arrangement that she would have been hoping for, and that's the arrangement she's going to hope will continue into the future. Through the birth of Caesarian, Cleopatra's link to Julius Caesar was clear for all to see. And she soon reunited with the Roman statesman, not in Egypt, but in Rome. Cleopatra goes to Rome to be with Caesar. So Caesar's been away doing various things, looking after his empire, and he lands in Rome and Cleopatra goes over to Rome to meet him. We don't know who she takes with her. We assume she takes a brother and we assume she takes the baby, but we cannot be 100% sure of that. And she seems to stay there right up to the point where Caesar is assassinated, so quite a lengthy stay. This, on the face of it, seems a very odd thing to do because she's only just got her country under control. Things have, have taken a turn for the better. She's ruling in a stable conditions, but is it the best time to go away on a prolonged trip? Maybe she was hoping to persuade Caesar to put their son into his will. I don't know if she would have ever been able to do that, though, because Romans weren't allowed, or he wouldn't have been allowed, to put a foreign-born son into his will, so that was probably never going to happen. She's not particularly popular with the people of Rome. I don't know whether that would have bothered her or not, but we have some classical authors writing and sort of muttering about how unpopular she was, so they didn't really take to her. All of a sudden, we've got this very powerful, very wealthy, very independent, very clever woman coming in and not, I think, attempting to behave like a typical Roman woman but like a pharaoh, like a goddess on earth. So presumably she's adorned, you know, with all of the iconography that she's used to wearing. And this, I think, is a source of concern to, to some Romans. She is a queen and she expects to be treated as such. One very striking act of Caesar's was to have a statue of Cleopatra commissioned in the form of the Romans goddess Venus within the temple of Venus Genetrix, which is in the Forum in Rome. So very prominent position. 
and an image which is at once Cleopatra, his ally, his consort, but also at the same time, a Roman goddess. So he's putting Cleopatra quite literally on a pedestal and saying, look, you know, this is somebody that you've got to support, you've got to get behind. But on the 15th of March, 44 BC, the Ides of March, Julius Caesar was assassinated. It was an act that greatly affected Cleopatra's next moves. So the first thing she has to do is to return home, which is what she does. The next thing that she seems to do, well, I say she seems to do it, I'll just say that her brother, husband, vanishes at this point. Ptolemy XIV happens to die, and we don't really know a lot about the circumstances around his death. It does present a real opportunity for Cleopatra to see a clear way forward for the rulership of Egypt, with her son, Caesarian, as pharaoh, ruling alongside herself. Which means, effectively, she's going to be a solo ruler now for at least another 10, 15 years. So it, it, makes, it makes her reshake her life. But it leaves her ruling Egypt as a solo ruler, but without the backing of a powerful person to support her. And whether Egypt to this point can survive like this is not entirely clear. She really needs to have the backing of a Roman and she needs to try and decide which Roman is going to be the most suitable one to support her and keep her on the throne and support Egypt as well. The crowning of Cleopatra's young son paved the way for Cleopatra to promote herself as a semi-divine monarch to align herself with Egypt's most famous single mother, the goddess Isis. The goddess Isis is a, a traditional goddess of Egypt, well-established and well-respected throughout Egypt. Her story is one of a, a queen of Egypt. She is the queen of Egypt. She's married to the king of Egypt, Osiris, and he is killed by his brother. She's able to bring him back to life. He's not fully back to life. She bandages him up. She makes him into the first mummy. And then he goes off to rule the land of the dead. And her son, Horus, becomes, eventually, becomes king of Egypt. So she's both married to an absent king of Egypt, the king of the dead, and she's the mother of the living king of Egypt. And from this point onwards, all dead kings of Egypt will become one with Osiris, and all living kings are the Horus king of Egypt. And Isis in this is the exemplar of the mother goddess. And by the Ptolemaic period, her star had risen, if anything, above that of Osiris. So Cleopatra was very canny in associating herself with a goddess who already was a great favourite of the Egyptians. So we're told that she dresses like Isis, um, not like the traditional ancient Egyptian Isis, but the classical version of Isis, who would be wearing a, a coloured robe and a, and a cloak over it and tied in a special knot and a little crown on her head maybe carrying a sistrum, a sacred rattle. Queen, mother and goddess, Cleopatra would have her new divine image conveyed across the kingdom. For instance, through the construction of temples. She finishes off building projects from earlier Ptolemies, including her father, and she also does selective buildings in some areas. A couple of good examples are Dendera. That's a, that's a really nice example. Cleopatra didn't build that from scratch. That predates her, that starts in the late period. Um, in fact, her father, Ptolemy XII, does a lot of work on Dendera. Um, and as is quite normal, you'd augment, you'd add to temples, you'd finish them. And Cleopatra pretty much finished Dendera Temple. Now, Dendera is an important one because that's the cult center of Hathor, 
very ISIS-like. And in fact, at this particular time, the distinction between ISIS and Hathor is almost non-existent. They iconographically look almost identical. So this is a great target temple for, for Cleopatra to identify with. And in fact, um, on that temple, you see a wonderful relief of Cleopatra and her son Caesarian um, offering to, to gods and, and various other individuals. She looks like an Egyptian queen. You wouldn't be able to distinguish her from any other Egyptian queen. I'm sure she didn't look like that. She probably didn't dress like that. But to the people who would see this at the temple, this is, this is the image that she wanted to portray. And she also, at a temple at Armant, she builds a little birth house, we call it, which tells the story of the birth of, of the god. And it's very clear that the birth of the god is being equated here to the birth of Caesarian. So she also ties in divine birth, the ideas of divine birth and mothers having children. So by associating herself with Isis, as she does more clearly than um, anywhere else at Armant in, in the temple reliefs there, she is showing herself to be the mother of the true rightful uh, heir to the throne. Um, Horus embodied in this case by Caesarian. So by associating herself with Isis, she's, she's putting herself at the very center of one of the Egyptians' most important fundamental beliefs. Um, she's also making it very difficult kind of theologically for the Egyptians to see anybody else as being legitimate claimants to the throne. Um, so sort of doctrinally, she's making it difficult for her rivals. It was following in a, a long tradition of showing how the current ruler was legitimate, a child of the gods and the right person to be ruling Egypt. By 42 BC, Cleopatra's position as queen of Egypt looked solid. But the overshadowing presence of Rome now once again reared its ugly head. Civil war once again loomed, fought between leading assassins of Julius Caesar, such as Marcus Brutus and Cassius Longinus, and former allies of Caesar, Octavian and Mark Antony. We've got, we've got Pom uh, Caesar's killers um, uh, at large. We've got Mark Antony, who was uh, Caesar's lieutenant, you know, kind of a right-hand man. Uh, so in one sense, a logical person to take over from where Caesar left off. But we've also got Octavian, who is related to Caesar. So he's a likely candidate to take over as well. And obviously that means that there's an issue between Mark Antony and between Octavian. So at this particular period, we've got another kind of quite disruptive era in Roman history. And we've got Egypt and Cleopatra in the background too. Cleopatra has to pick a side to be on when, when Rome erupts again into, into civil war because she needs a supporter and she doesn't want anyone to invade Egypt. And Egypt's in quite a vulnerable position because theoretically, Rome has an interest in Egypt. Theoretically, one of the earlier Ptolemies has actually left an interest in Egypt to Rome. So it might be that someone might say, OK, we now own Egypt and we're coming to take it. And she would struggle with that one. So she has to pick a side, but she does what she does quite often is she hesitates. She, she doesn't pick a side. She, she says she's ill. She says she'll send fleets to help people, but then there's bad weather, so they can't set off and things. She really, really hesitates. Actions would have consequences. Brutus and Cassius were defeated by Mark Antony and Octavian at the Battles of Philippi in October 42 BC. And the following year, Mark Antony summoned Cleopatra to Tarsus in southeast Turkey, seeking an explanation 
for her past inaction. We know that Antony summoned Cleopatra to Tarsus. He was collecting money from vassals and he was also inquiring into people who might have helped people who weren't on the right side in, in the civil war. And it was suspected that by delaying and not sending help when it was asked for, that Cleopatra had been one of those people who was waiting to see which way things went, which I'm sure she was. She might have already known Mark Antony, or she would have certainly known of him. He'd been in Egypt, she'd been in Rome. Um, she probably knew about his nature, his character. And I think she felt that she could deal with him. And I think she felt that she could almost repeat what had happened with Caesar. So she decided, yes, she would go. She had no choice, really. But she went to meet him on her own terms. And she went apparently dressed as Isis in, in beautiful, splendid robes. She travelled to meet him on her grand boat, the Thalamagos, um, with a whole flotilla of other ships. Again, Thalamagos is a sort of floating demonstration of Ptolemaic wealth and power and the luxury. of. And everybody in the area comes down to see this spectacle. You know, it must have been quite something to behold. You know, she's displaying the wealth of her country. And don't forget, she's a pharaoh. She's a goddess on earth. So presumably, it's all of that pomp and ceremony, something to see. So everybody's coming down to see, apart from Mark Antony, who's invited her. And of course, he's trying to, you know, have her come off of her barge up to meet him. But she refuses. So she refuses to do that. And she insists that Mark Antony come down to her, which eventually he does. And it seems that very quickly he fell in love with her. I say fell in love, again, I'm probably putting a modern interpretation in it. They certainly formed an alliance, I think is the best way to put it. It shows Cleopatra to be quite the, the stateswoman. I think she's aware that, that she doesn't want to throw her lot in with, with Mark Antony. She wants to do things on her own terms. And she's kind of showing him how independent and strong she is. She's a pharaoh of Egypt, you know, so why should she expect to kind of jump off this boat and go and grovel before Mark Antony? Um, so I think that probably some, some kind of mutual respect was, was really kind of seen through at that meeting. Rather than arriving back in Egypt a headless corpse following her venture to Tarsus, Cleopatra returned to Alexandria a champion of the diplomatic stage, her new ally and lover Mark Antony by her side. They seem to have had a great time in Alexandria. Um, very childish in many ways, drinking societies, playing jokes, um, going through the streets in quite a rowdy manner. But all this seems to be absolutely what Mark Antony liked to do. It's interesting to know how much of this is, is her working out what he liked to do and, and using it to entrap him further and how much she's actually enjoying this herself. It's Sometimes we, we see her as two great love stories, but I think we have to allow her a bit more political acumen than this. I think she's chosen Mark Antony and she's getting him on side here and she knows exactly what he likes and she's providing it. Antony was soon on the move once more. As he hurried across the Roman Mediterranean, dealing with the political fallout of the recent civil war, Cleopatra remained in Egypt, ruling over an increasingly prosperous kingdom. It's very difficult to tell how she is administering Egypt. All we can see is that things are slowly turning around and getting better. We do know there were low Niles. We do know there were, there were financial issues because Egypt's very much tied into the broader Eastern Mediterranean. And we know that Cleopatra apparently reacted to all of these in the interests of her country. I mean, we also, we do have a document. Well, we have one document that 
has writing on it that says Guinness, though. It's simply a word written that translates as something like, let it be so. So it is. Agreed. That kind of thing. And some scholars have, have suggested, based on what we know of the date of this letter, that this could be Cleopatra's own handwriting. It would be wonderful if it was, but um, I don't think that we can really truthfully say it was. Would she even sign her own documents? I don't know. She, we know that she could read and write, or we're fairly certain that she could. Whether she's actually sitting there signing documents, whether she would get someone else to do it for her. Because just because you can read and write, if you have a scribe, do you read and write or do you tell them what to do? I don't know. But it's a lovely idea that we have one document that has one word on it that she has actually written. But in 37 BC, Cleopatra would once again be summoned to a far away city by Mark Antony. This time to the prestigious city of Antioch for one of the most extraordinary events in Cleopatra's rise. Cleopatra starts to support Mark Antony and Mark Antony is increasingly keen on, on breaking away from Octavian and establishing an Eastern Empire. But in Antioch, he summons Cleopatra because he's in desperate need of money and, and troops and support. And she goes to meet him. She does a lot of travelling, actually. It's quite interesting. She goes to meet him and she says, yes, she will give him support, but in return, she wants something. She wants all the lands that the earlier Ptolemaic kings once owned in the east. And he says, yes, she can have it. So almost overnight, she's restored the lost empire of the Ptolemies in the, in the east. And they are, they are now firmly put together as allies. Thanks to this very generous gift, this clever diplomatic play by Cleopatra, Seleucid kings of old would be turning in their graves because Cleopatra now ruled the dominant kingdom in the eastern Mediterranean and the wealthiest. The once mighty Ptolemaic kingdom that had enjoyed its height some 200 years earlier, where its borders theoretically stretched from the southern reaches of Anatolia to Syria to into the Near East to Cyrenaica in the west ancient Libya and of course to Egypt, the heartlands themselves, well that mighty Ptolemaic kingdom had been restored. And for her this is really a restoration of the family um, heritage, if you like, and I think it proves to her and proves to the people of Egypt that she is a suitable person to, to rule Egypt because she's done a wonderful thing. She's got this land back. To us, I think it demonstrates what a good organiser, what a good governor she's been, that she's able to be in the position to demand this and that Mark Antony has to go along with it, that she actually has enough wealth now to support him. So it, it's an interesting thing. It also sets up the foundation for moving forward. If they're going to be a couple and they're going to have a power base, they've, they've got a power base here. It's gone from Rome to Egypt, which I think is very important. Over the next few years, Cleopatra would spend time both in Alexandria, overseeing Egypt, and further afield in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, not only did she accompany Antony as he ventured east to launch new military endeavours, but she also visited her newly acquired territories along the eastern Mediterranean shoreline and maintained friendly relations with nearby powerful monarchs, including the infamous King Herod. King Herod's always interesting because, of course, he's a, a big player in one part of the you know, biblical narrative, of course. So it's interesting to see you know, him pop up outside of that. And he's ruling Judea, which essentially 
in, in some ways, like Egypt, are you know, under Rome's protection. So, so in many ways, Cleopatra and Herod are kind of equivalents, in a way, in, in Rome's view. They're both kind of clients of, of Rome, as it were. So we know that Cleopatra met Herod several times, or we are told that he met Herod, Herod several times, but it's really difficult to work out what went on. Um, the Josephus, who tells us about the meeting, is quite biased against Cleopatra. What we're told is that they didn't get on, that Cleopatra meddled in Jewish affairs and was seen as quite hostile to the Jews, which doesn't seem particularly likely, actually, because Alexandria has a high Jewish population living there, and it's one of the, the largest Jewish centres outside Jerusalem. So I'm not sure how true this is, but certainly the rumour is that she and Herod absolutely did not get on, and she didn't get on with Herod's family either. Nobody seemed to have liked her at all because she was seen as grasping and inappropriate and trying to seduce him, one of the stories is. But there are so many stories about Cleopatra trying to seduce people, and this happens when you get famous or prominent women. They're always accused of trying to seduce people. So I think that all we can say is that possibly it wasn't the best relationship, but I don't think that we could push it any further than that. But enough on King Herod. Back to Cleopatra, Mark Antony and Egypt. Intent on displaying the martial and economic power of their kingdom, in 34 BC, Cleopatra and Mark Antony staged an extraordinary spectacle back in Alexandria. Mark Antony's just come back from, um, from a, a victory, a battle. So um, he's won a victory over the Armenians. It doesn't seem to have been a massive, hugely significant victory. But regardless, he comes back in full triumph to Alexandria and kind of puts on the kind of typical sort of Roman display of triumph, where, you know, you parade through the streets and, you know, he's seated in a really over-the-top kind of gold throne on a silver DS, and all of this kind of stuff, a real demonstration of wealth and power and ability and victory. And, you know, you've got the captives there as well, you know, kind of a very you know, typical Roman thing to do, parading these captives around in triumph. This kind of develops into a celebration that's known as the Donations of Alexandria. The Donations of Alexandria is a celebration where the whole family, so it's Cleopatra, Caesarian, who is the alleged son of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony and their three children, so it'll be Cleopatra Cellini, Alexander Helios, their twins, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, the baby, went to the gymnasium in Alexandria and dressed in, in appropriate costumes Mark Antony is dressed as Dionysus. Cleopatra appears as Isis. Um, she is declared Queen of Kings. Caesarion, her son, is declared King of Kings. Basically, Mark Antony gave a speech declaring that they were going to rule the Eastern world, that Cleopatra and her son would rule Egypt, that the children would have rights to various lands in the Eastern Empire, and that Caesarion himself had a right to rule Rome as well. So this is a vision of a kind of um, idyllic future for Cleopatra and her line, in which all of her children are, are in control of various parts of the, uh, of the Mediterranean world. But of course, it's a future that's never going to come about, um, because in making these donations, Mark Antony was going to be making himself very unpopular in Rome, and that was to lead to his downfall.
I would say that this is the high watermark in her story, Cleopatra's story. But at this point, it looks like everything's going to plan. They're going to take over the Eastern Empire. They're going to have a, a foothold in Rome. Caesarian will eventually inherit Rome, probably. Her children will inherit other lands. She's with Mark Antony, who's clearly superior to Octavian. And, you know, the world is their oyster and they, they're announcing it to everybody. Within 20 turbulent years of ascending the throne of Egypt, Cleopatra had emerged the victor of a bloody civil war. She had won the hearts of two of Rome's most powerful warlords. She had restored a golden age for her kingdom. And she had risen to rule the most powerful empire in the eastern Mediterranean. I find Cleopatra's story so interesting because... She seems to rise from nowhere. Now, obviously, having said that, she was born into the royal family. I'm, you know, she's not, she's not come from nowhere. But she wasn't the firstborn daughter. And she made her way through all sorts of obstacles. And I think she shows a lot of political good sense. And she is able to control her own destiny. She's born into a family where people murder each other, where you've got to almost murder or be murdered. And she's able to navigate her way through that. And at the same time, she brings Egypt along with her. So as her life improves, so Egypt gets stronger and stronger. And she turns people's opinions so people who didn't like her start to like her. And I think it's just such an impressive achievement for anyone to do that. And I think it's such a shame that we tend to focus on her beauty and love affairs rather than looking at her political ability and her brains, I guess, and really respect her for what she did. To me, it's fascinating. It's a great story of a of a great individual, undoubtedly. It's also absolutely pivotal in the history of Egypt and in the history of the ancient world. Um, for, and for that reason, I think Cleopatra's story is one of the best and most important we have from ancient history. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed our special multi-contributor episode on the rise of Cleopatra, featuring the brilliant Professor Joyce Tildesley, Dr. Glenn Godenho and Dr. Chris Norton. It was an absolute pleasure to get all three of those Egyptologists in this documentary and podcast episode, all about the rise of the most famous woman from the ancient world. Now, last but certainly not least from me, if you'd like more Ancients content, well, you can, of course, subscribe to our weekly Ancients newsletter via a link in the description below. And if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, the whole team, the whole Ancients team would greatly appreciate it as we continue to share these incredible stories from ancient history. That is our mission, and we want to increase our audience as much as we can. The only way is up. But that's enough from me. Once again, I really hope you enjoyed this special episode and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. 
As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.